Well, we've been in this series walking through Ecclesiastes, and I have to say, uh, for those of you that haven't been able to be here for each message, don't miss last week's message. And, you know, you hear that from time to time, and uh, I, I honestly, Lloyd's a phenomenal teacher, we know that, but for some, there was something about last week's message in particular that I thought to myself, this is a message that I hope marks our church. This is one of those formative sermons. And I just want to recap a point that he made because I think it's something that God's been speaking to us for a while here at Fellowship. And I think Lloyd articulated it really well. He talked about the word here in Hebrew. And you know, last week's passage is all about, hey, here's how you are to come into the house of God. You're to come in to listen. You're come in to hear. The Hebrew word here, Shema, actually means more than just listen. It means listen and obey. There's not a separate word in Hebrew for obey. It's just Shema, it's just listen. So if you were here last week, you heard Lloyd say, to hear God speak and to obey those words are one and the same thing from a scriptural standpoint. And I know for me as a parent, I identify with this because I tell my kids all the time, go clean your room, go take care of your dishes, whatever it is. And sometimes they just sit there and the next words out of my mouth are, did you not hear what I said? So there's this expectation that when someone in authority over you speaks, you are to not just listen, but obey. And so why do I think that's so important for us as a church? We want to be the kind of church that comes underneath God's word, that submits to the authority of God's word, of the spirit of God speaking through the text. That's why we preach the way we preach week in, week out. That's why we encourage you to read the Bible and study the Bible on your own and in small groups. But we can't just listen. We can't just hear. We've also got to live it. We want to be the kind of church that hears God and obeys God. In fact, Lloyd said it this way. He said, the sacrifice of fools, that was a phrase that was in last week's text, the sacrifice of fools is to go through the motions of faith with a heart that is far from faith. May that not be us. And Isn't it so easy in our cultural context because most people in this area go to church. It's just kind of the thing to do. Isn't it so easy to just be the kind of person, I identify with this at times, to just go through the motions of faith with a heart that's far from faith. And we believe God is leading us through his word to be a different kind of people. So I just wanted to say that. If you missed that last week, I can't do it justice uh, in this uh, short time, but I would encourage you to listen to it. And so here we are again this morning, coming into the house of God, coming into the house of worship, not just to hear but to obey. And there are some very interesting words that God would speak to us through this passage of Scripture. Now, I want to lead into the message this morning with an illustration. Raise your hand if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, all right, which is in Israel. It's got Israel on one side, Jordan on the other side. Okay, maybe six or eight of you. Um, I'm going to put some pictures up on the Dead Sea because I want to use the Dead Sea as an illustration to get us going in this message this morning. So take a look at these pictures to kind of get an idea of the landscape around the Dead Sea. Let me share with you a few things. You might or might not know that the Dead Sea is the lowest point on earth, 1,400 feet below sea level. So if you've ever been to the Dead Sea, you've been at the lowest point on earth. It's also one of the saltiest bodies of water. Many people think it's the saltiest. Technically, it's almost the saltiest. There's a couple of other uh, bodies of water that are just a tad saltier. But it has 34% saline content. Now, that may not mean much to you until you realize that the average ocean, the salt water that you and I are used to, has 3.5%. So it's 10 times 
saltier than the average ocean. Therefore, nothing can live in this sea. I mean, you can see it's a dead zone. I mean, it looks pretty itself, but the area around it is dead and under the water is dead. There's no fish. There's no shrimp. There's nothing. There's not even bacteria. There's nothing there. Nothing can survive that environment with the salinity as high as it is. Now, one fun fact, because of the salinity, it changes the buoyancy of the water or or some crazy scientific thing, and you can float in the water, as this next picture will attest to. Who's that crazy guy in there floating in the Dead Sea? Okay, anybody ever done that? Anybody in the room floating in the Dead Sea? Okay, yeah, some of you have. It's you know it's it's remarkable because you think all right, that's just a moment in time. Like he's probably paddling like crazy. He's like, quick, take the picture, and then you know, no, I could sit like that all day. You know, maybe my arms would get tired from holding up the book. But you know, literally, I'm just out there reading the book. I had a, another picture of Jody with me floating in, and she was not going to let me put that picture up. So you know, you got, but hey, you know, I've got, you got a picture of me in there in the, the Dead Sea. Go ahead and take it off. All right, go to a map. <laughs> go to a map. I want to show you why the Dead Sea is so salty. Here's what's going on. You got the Jordan River that flows north to south through Israel. Okay, now you see the Jordan. This kind of the, uh, I guess that'd be the eastern border of Israel. The Jordan River, so everything to the west of the Jordan River is Israel. It flows down north to south. It gets to the Dead Sea, and there's no outlet on the bottom. There's no river that extends out the south of the Dead Sea. So the water flows in, and by the way, it's fresh water all along the river. Then it gets to the Dead Sea, and it just goes down to this low point, like a trough, and it collects with no outlet. And so what happens with water just sitting around is it will evaporate. There's 142 million gallons of water a day that's evaporated from the Dead Sea. When water evaporates, it leaves behind the residue of whatever was in that water. So water that we call fresh actually has a little bit, you know, traces of different elements in it that then combine when it's mixed together to form salt in the water. So it's evaporating. What's left behind are these elements that forms the salt. And so over time, it's gotten more and more and more salty because the water's evaporated out, the salt stays behind. More water comes in, it's evaporated out, salt stays behind. So you get 34% saline content and increasing. It's getting saltier and saltier. Now, this is a picture. This Dead Sea is a picture of a life given over to the pursuit of more. I want to personify the Dead Sea for a minute. Water in the desert is the most precious resource, is it not? So imagine the Dead Sea as a hoarder. The Dead Sea, you know, if it had a personality essentially said, you know, water's valuable. I've got to have this water. I've got to collect this water, and I'm not going to let any of this water flow out on the other side because I want it all for me. And as the hoarder, the Dead Sea hoarding all this water, has found out when you hoard something, it literally is spoiled in your fingers. This is a life given over to the pursuit of more. This is a message we need to hear in our society and in our culture. And by the way, when we talk about culture, we can't just point fingers out there, right? We're in the culture, particularly as it relates to this. See if any of this rings a bell. And, you know, we define more in all kinds of different ways. But all of us just want a little more money, a little more success, a little more choices, a little more entertainment, more leisure, more convenience, more enjoyment, more happiness, We all just want a little bit more. And so what Solomon is saying in this passage is, be careful you don't give your life over to that instinct. 
Because if you do, if you just focus on funneling more and more into containers, it all is just going to eventually evaporate. Because at, and as it evaporates, it will leave behind nothing but some residue picked up along the way. The pursuit of more cannot sustain life. There is no life in more. That's the big idea of our message. And that's sort of the sermon, all right? Now, I want to get through the passage because you're going to find three important things in this message. And it's going to break down this way. Verses 8 to 12 talks about the curse of more. Why is more a bad thing? What's wrong with having a little bit more, right? All of us naturally ask that. And, you know, I don't want to exaggerate and say, hey, you know, you can't buy anything else the rest of your life because you're pursuing more. No, no, no. You know, that's blowing this out of proportion. But what's the curse of more? We'll talk about that in the first verses. The middle of the passage will give us a story of more, a little parable that's going to illustrate these principles. And then on the back end is the solution to more. He will not leave us without hope. He will not leave us without an answer. So we've got the curse of more, a story of more, and a solution to more. And I like to call that last section a more better way. All right, I got two left. That's better than the first service. Got nothing the first service. All right, let's talk about the curse of more. In these first two verses, I'm going to try to whip through them very fast, but I don't want to miss them because there is something important here. Verses 8 and 9. If you see oppression of the poor and denial of justice and righteousness in the province, do not be shocked at the sight. For one official watches over another official, and there are higher officials over them. After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. Now, Here's what Solomon's getting after here. One of the inevitable results of the human instinct for more is that we tend to stomp on those below us as we climb the ladder of more. Sometimes intentionally, oftentimes unintentionally. So every society in the world that ever has existed post the fall, you know, post sin entering the world, has always developed natural tears, the haves, the have-nots. And in our society, it's a lot more complicated than that. You don't just have the haves and the have-nots. You've got the have-nots and then those who have a little more than the have-nots. And then those that don't, aren't quite the haves, but they're not quite the have-nots. And they're somewhere in the middle. And there's all these layers, right? It's like this tiered system. And what Solomon is saying is natural human nature is to oppress those below you, to step on those below you. So don't be surprised when you see that. Because when you're oppressed, the people that are oppressing you are being oppressed by the people above them who are being oppressed by the officials above them. And it goes on and on and up the ladder. And so what you have is you have whole societal structures that contain oppression and injustice. Every societal structure in the history of the world after Genesis 3 has had this. And so what we strive in government is we strive to minimize the impression, but we can never make it go away. Don't miss this fact. Solomon is not saying this is okay. He's saying don't be surprised by it. Throughout the Old and New Testaments, God's people are called to a higher way. God's people are called to follow the example of Jesus who reached down rather than reached up. And we'll talk about that more toward the end of the message. Here's an application for us. We need to be a people of God who aren't just 
stepping on others unintentionally or intentionally on our pursuit of more. We need to look around and say, who has less than me and how can I help them? How can I serve them? That's the way of Jesus. That's what God has always called his people to be is different from this pattern. All right, so Solomon's saying the first problem with more is it creates this structure that's always going to lead to inevitable oppression, so don't be surprised by it. He's going to go in the next few verses to talk about three specific problems with the pursuit of more. Let's look at the first one here in chapter 10. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves abundance with his income. This too is vanity. All right, here's a problem with more. The first problem uh, of the three in these three verses. The first problem is that more is never satisfied. By definition, more is never satisfied. More is always what is still out there. So I don't know what your story is, but I remember thinking, you know, when I first got a job, it's like, man, if I could just have a job. Then I got the job, and it was like, if I could just get a raise, I got the raise. If I could just get a promotion, I got the promotion. If I could just be in ministry instead of what I'm doing, you know, and then I became poor and became in ministry. If I could just get a job, and I got a job. If I could just... There's always more. There's always more. There's always a little more money. There's always a little more comfort. There's always a little more choices that are out there that you do not yet have. And this drives so much of our pursuits. More is never satisfied by definition. It's almost a self-fulfilling prophecy. The desire for more itself creates dissatisfaction. And so then you want more. It's just the way how it works. And so Solomon is saying... He who loves money will never be satisfied with it. More is never satisfied. That's the first problem with more in verse 10. Let's go to the next one in verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? Now, let me tell you what I think this means. Uh, At first I thought, oh man, He's advocating a diet plan, right? He's talking about our expanding waistlines. When good things increase, those who, in, those who consume them increase, right? <laughs> That's what I thought, you know, for a half a second. That's not what it means, actually. Where, where he's going is he's saying the more you have, the more resources you have to pour into managing what you have. Isn't that true? Hasn't your life gotten more complicated as you've gotten more responsibility, more money, more income? Doesn't it take more to sustain a lifestyle based on more? And so Solomon is saying, is there actually any gain? Because like the higher you go, the, 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 the worries go with it. And so you're just kind of always doing this, whether you're rich, whether you're poor. It's kind of like, is there anything to gain from all of this? Think about the Dead Sea. It has a constant inflow with no outflow. Why isn't, isn't it getting any bigger? Because of evaporation. And so you get the, the wider the surface area, the more the evaporation. So eventually it got to a place of equilibrium, right? There's no gain in all this water coming in. It's just gone. It's just evaporating up. Interestingly, in the last 50, 60 years, it's been shrinking dramatically and causing all kinds of problems. It's a dangerous area around there with sinkholes. Why has it been contracting it's been contracting because the water source upstream is less as israel has been using more irrigation it's been pulling off the jordan river for other things so the dead sea is dying it's actually just an illustration of the more you have the more resources get sucked away from you the less you have 
doesn't take as much to manage all that. The Dead Sea is a very interesting illustration of this principle. So here's the big idea, the, the second problem with more from this verse. More collection creates more consumption. More collection creates more consumption. I've talked to a number of uh, entrepreneurs who started a business and they've had some success and they'll say, man, uh, this is great to have a little more money, but I kind of miss the good old days when it was just me. Now I've got people to manage. Now I've got organizational problems. You know, this is just true. More, more success, more collection creates more outflow, more consumption. So verse 10, more is never satisfied. Verse 11, more collection creates more consumption. The final problem is identified in verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. Here we have another example of a proverb in the book of Ecclesiastes. Makes sense because this is Solomon's wisdom, Solomon's voice, at least, if not um, directly, it's at least his wisdom being represented. There are two ways that you could take the sleeping problems of the rich man, either stress or overeating. Either way, Solomon seems to be saying being rich is not all it's cracked up to be. It has problems of its own, right? And that's just true. Those of you that have significant resources, you know this is true. It has problems of its own. Now, I think it's interesting, and I want to summarize this problem this way. The more you have, the less you tend to rest. It's just a principle. The more you have, the less you tend to rest. I think it's interesting that as our standard of living has increased in this nation in recent decades to a a place, honestly, it's never been before of prosperity. Do you know what's dramatically decreased as our prosperity has increased? Sleep. I won't ask for a uh, show of hands, but I bet you many in this room have sleep trouble. Um, the reason I, I say that is because it's a national epidemic, like a, literally an epidemic. The Center for Disease Control uh, three or four years ago labeled sleep disorders as a national epidemic that's causing all kinds of problems across our country. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. I'm not saying like, you know, you know the reason you're not sleeping well is because you have too much money. That's not, <laughs> that's not necessarily the point here. But isn't it interesting that our country has never been more prosperous and it's never had a harder time sleeping? And I know there's a lot of reasons for that, but I've been interested by that as I've thought about this message. And the principle tends to be, the more you have, the less you rest. I mean, your mind is going, you're struggling, you think about it. I would even just say, forget about money, for example. Studies have shown that part of our struggle to rest is because we're inundated with choices and we're inundated with media and messages all the time. It's like this exaggeration of all this stimuli And it's hard to tune all that out and get some rest. The more you have, the less you tend to rest. Now, you put all these together and, you know, more is never satisfied. More collection creates more consumption. The more you have, the less you rest. And the big idea is if you go after more as a a life commitment, which most people in our society do, whether they would say it or not, if you make that your life goal, you're not going to get what you want. You're not ultimately going to get what you really need. Now, let's illustrate this principle through this next section. Verses 13 to 17 is a story of more. Let's look back at it again. There's a grievous evil which I have seen under the sun, riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. When those riches were lost through a bad investment and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. As he had come naked from his mother's womb, 
so he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So what is the advantage to him who toils for the wind? Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. This is the tragedy of a life wasted. How was it wasted in this case? Well, it's a man who gives his life to accumulation, probably thinking of future generations, right? That son he doesn't even have yet. He's working hard. Guess what? He finally has the son, and he loses the money through a bad investment. And Solomon is saying now he can't even support himself or his son. What's the gain? He wasted his effort. He wasted his life. Now, some of you in the room are tempted right now to say, that can't happen to me because I'm diversified, you know, I'm protected. Uh, you know, got, I don't have everything over here. I've got to spread all out. So, you know, we could go World War III and I'd probably be okay, all right? Did you miss verse 16? Verse 16, Solomon says, just in case you don't think this applies to you, listen to this next part, there is a catastrophic turn coming for every single person. It's called death. Death is the great event in life that unmasks the wisdom of your investments. All will be revealed. Did you spend your time wisely? Did you spend your resources wisely? Did you spend your money wisely? There will be a moment in time, if Jesus doesn't come first, there will be a moment in time where people will be sitting in a room not too dissimilar from this, and they'll be talking about you in the past tense. That's coming. And Solomon keeps reminding us of that. For a reason, for a purpose. At that moment in time, what they say will be nice things. Okay, people don't say ugly things at funerals, not any funeral that I've ever been to. But the question is, will those nice things they say be this deep? And everybody in the room is thinking like, man, oh, what story could I tell? I don't really have that many good stories about him. But oh yeah, there's that one time that we enjoyed a burger together. Or will there be an overflow of the people who knew you best saying, let me tell you about the imprint he or she made on my life. Let me tell you about how generous the person was. Let me tell you about the outflow that came from this person. It wasn't all about them. Is that going to be the story that's told? Solomon's reminding us, you have a choice. And if you give yourself over to accumulation, whatever, if it, maybe some of you, it's not money. It's success or it's comfort. It's the other things. If you give yourself over to that, there will be a catastrophic event in your life where, as John Ortberg says, when the game is over, it all goes back in the box. Now, we know you can't take anything with you. Solomon has reminded us of this. So his point is, if you spend your life pursuing more, you've made a bad investment. You've made a poor investment. You've been chasing after the wind. I don't care how diversified you are. You're not going to take any of it with you. Whatever's passed on to the next generation could be squandered in month one or year one. Or if it's not, they're also going to die, you see. It's all going to go back where it came from. So we have the curse of more and a story to illustrate it. And I, and I hope there's a little bit of sobriety in this because it's certainly in the text. But now I want to make a turn and I want to talk about a more better way. What's the solution to this instinct that we all have for more? And it's in all of us, not just some of us. There's no guilt to be in this room. You know, we're all sharing this. 
Let's look at the solution that Solomon gives us. And we'll unpack Solomon's solution, and then I want to take us to a second solution as well. Uh, We're going to look at the life of Jesus for the second part. But let's talk about Solomon's solution first in verses 18 to 20. Here is what I have seen to be good and fitting. And by the way, those two words, good and fitting, are like a breath of fresh air after all that we just heard, right? Here's what's good. Here's what's fitting. To eat, to drink, and enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him. For this is his reward. Furthermore, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. Verse 20. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied. I love this last phrase. Occupied with the gladness of his heart. This is the fourth example in Ecclesiastes so far, just through these five chapters, where Solomon has given us what we would theologians call the carpe diem theme, which is a strong theme in Ecclesiastes. Remember, carpe diem, seize the day. Four times now, Solomon has saying, eat and enjoy it, drink and enjoy it, live your life as a, it's a gift of God and enjoy it. This one is my favorite of, of all the ones in Ecclesiastes, and there's a total of six in the whole book. This one's my favorite because the, the person behind the scenes is so obvious in this passage. If you notice how many times God was mentioned. Verse 18, God is the one who gives life. Verse 19, God is the one who gives us every material thing. Also, verse 19, God is the one who gives us the ability to enjoy it. So it's one thing to have this stuff. It's another thing to be able to enjoy the stuff. If you are, God has given you that. Verse 20, God is the one who can occupy us with gladness of heart. It's him that can occupy us with gladness of heart. We might pause here and summarize all of Solomon's message from chapter 1 through chapter 5 this way. Life under the sun in a broken creation does not make sense. It is a vapor. It's here. It's gone. It's vanity. There's no lasting substance because everything ends in death. So how should we live in light of that? Here is part of the answer. Solomon says, receive life as a gift. You receive life as a gift. Now, several weeks ago, Lloyd uh, quoted um, a commentator that said this, and I, I thought this was a very helpful way to remember this. Life in God's world is gift, not gain. It's gift, not gain. And so here's the first solution to the curse of more. The first solution is you remember that what you have is a gift. You remember that life is gift, not gain. Now, let me apply this to us. You can't enjoy what you've been given right now if you're always thinking about what you wish you had. What you are holding right now, whether it's small or great, is what God has given you. He has not given you what's out there. He has not given you anything other than what you have had, what you have right now. You might wish it was more or different. You might think, well, someday I'll have more. Maybe, maybe not. You might think, I wish I had what I used to have because I had something better than what I have now. May also be true, but that's not what God has given you right now, is it? What you have right now is what God has given you. 
And so the message at the end of this chapter is not um, some pagan message of go party yourself into oblivion. The message is be content with what you have. Eat what you have, not what you wish you had, and enjoy it and give honor to the giver. Drink what you have, so to speak, not what you wish you had. Enjoy what you have, not what you wish you had. That's this message that Solomon is giving. So that's the first answer. That's Solomon's answer to what he would say is a pointless pursuit of more, the curse of more. Remember that life in this world is gift, not gain. Now I want to take it one step further and I want to give you one more solution, one more answer. Um, To do that, we need to think about the problem of more in light of the whole Bible. Remember, we've talked about this before. One of the the lenses that you have to read Ecclesiastes in is through the lens of progressive revelation. What that means is Solomon doesn't have all the answers. And the Spirit is speaking through him in this book. We recognize that as God's voice in this book. But God did not choose to reveal everything to Solomon in AD 1000, or uh, BC 1000, which is when he would have lived, somewhere around there. We know a lot more. Specifically, we know what Jesus came to fulfill. So let's talk about Jesus for a minute because he had a lot to say about the pursuit of more. In fact, all through his time with his disciples, he was constantly instructing them on this. You know, remember when two of them came and they said, hey, when you come into your kingdom, let let one of us sit on your left and one of us sit on your right. What were they asking for? More. More power, more riches, more wealth, more influence, more opportunity to shape the kingdom. They're asking for more. What did Jesus say? It's not for me to decide that. But listen, he who wants to be the greatest of all becomes the servant of all. Now, Jesus didn't just say that in a way that they would have looked at him and said, well, easy for you to say because you're the king, you know. And the king on top can say anything he wants. He said that to them as one who had given it up, all of it, Philippians chapter 2, to come himself and serve. Jesus had everything, still does. He was sitting to the right with the right hand of the Father in heaven. He said, no, no, I'm not going to consider this something that I'm going to grab onto and hold onto and keep. I'm going to open my hands and I'm going to become a servant and I'm going to go to the very bottom of that human food chain. And he was dirt poor. And he served from that perspective. And so he's telling his disciples, that's what you do with more is you actually give it up for other people. I don't think they liked that message. But then they learned how to do it. And by the time these men died and the women that followed Jesus, by the time these men and women died, they literally were giving it all away, even their lives. And they did it with joy in their hearts. And they are now experiencing the more that they gave up in their lifetimes. Do you see how that is a biblical principle? You were designed for more. Only you're not going to get all of your more here. Through faith in Jesus, you will be filled. You will have in abundance what your heart longs for. Good things to eat, good things to drink, good friends, wealth beyond your imagination. That's not promised here. That's in the kingdom kingdom to come, you see. And it's all going to be to God's glory, not to your gain. Life is gift, 
not gain. So what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, I'm willing to make a trade to go down the ladder, not up, and I want you to follow me in it because that's where real life is found. Now, I want you to read what Paul wrote about this principle because this verse is my favorite one when it comes to reflecting on money and wealth. 2 Corinthians 8, 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. Check this out. So that you, through his poverty, might become rich. Do you see what Jesus did? He gave up his place so that you could have it. He gave up his place so that we could have what he had. Access to the Father, the the life that we always want, the life that we had in the Garden of Eden, so to speak, that we're kind of just dying to get back into. We just want to be secure. We want to be safe. We want to be happy. He came down so we could have that. And he says, listen, your life between now and when you die is going to be a life of discipleship. It's going to be a life of following me, becoming downwardly mobile. Rather than upwardly mobile. So you can serve others. And the reward for all this is on the other side. Can you hold that tension, men and women of God? Can you follow Jesus down this path? If you can, you are not like your neighbors. You are not like the rest of Williamson County for the most part. Let me give you a final illustration that illustrate this point. Here's the point. I, uh, or, no, no, no. The illustration first, then the point. That way I'm going to get ahead of myself. Here's the illustration. There's one other significant body of water in Israel that's uh, called a sea. Technically, it's a lake. Who can name it for me? Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Let me show some pictures of the Sea of Galilee. Put those up on the screen, if you will. I want you to think about how different that is from the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is a freshwater lake. It's massive. It's huge. Um, It's a place of life. It's a place of vibrancy. It's a place of beauty. It's Israel's most significant freshwater source to this day. It literally sustains a nation, the Sea of Galilee. And you can go and visit, and you know, particularly in the springtime, it's just like, man, where, you know, where are all the resorts? Because this place needs to have resorts around it. There aren't a lot of resorts. You know why? Israel protects it because it's their most valuable resource. It's their freshwater source in the middle of a desert. This literally sustains a nation. Now, let me show you a map of what's going on here because I want you to see something. You have the Sea of Galilee up in the north. You can't see this, but the Jordan River actually extends up north of the Sea of Galilee, and the headwaters of the Jordan River are north of the Sea of Galilee. So the Jordan River, it's a springs that come out of the ground, flows down north to south into the Sea of Galilee. Here's the point. The same river that feeds the Dead Sea feeds the Sea of Galilee. Why is one fresh? and beautiful, and life-giving, and vibrant, and one is dead? You know the answer. Look at these two contrasted side by side. See if Greg can put those pictures up on the screen. It may take him a minute. I want you to think about this for a minute. What is the difference? There's only one difference. What is the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? Someone just said it. The Dead Sea has no outlet. The Sea of Galilee takes the water in. It says, it's not mine to keep. I'm going to let it pass through me. Dead Sea keeps it and says, mine. It's not going anywhere. And it's taken from it. Do you see? This is this passage. Here's the big idea become all of this. So your first lesson is remember life is gift, not gain. So you can be satisfied with what you have. The second lesson is become a conduit, not a container. 
so you can give life to others. Become a conduit, not a container. Become a sea of Galilee, not a dead sea. If you want to have life, and isn't that what we all want? We all want to have life that's real life. You got to look more like this than you look like that. All right? You need to be a place of flourishing. That's only going to happen if you allow your blessings to pass through you, your resources to pass through you. Now, there's an awful lot of application from this. I hope the Spirit's leading you in all kinds of ways. What can I give away? What, what's just sitting in my attic that I'm not using and it's literally wasting away? What can I give away? I hope you're also thinking about your time. I hope you're thinking about all these different things that God's given you. And, and now I want to give us one application for us corporately. We want to bring back the sharing board. All right? Some of you are like, what's the sharing board? Last fall, going through Acts, we, we put a big board out in the lobby, and we'll put a picture of it. There it is right there. A bunch of clipboards on that board. Now, this was taken this morning, and they're all blank. Here's what we're going to invite you to do. Grab a piece of paper, which is right there on that um, small little table. If you have a need, something God says, you know, I want to meet this need, and you don't have the resources to meet the need. Maybe it's a medical bill. Maybe you're out of work. Maybe you need help around the house. Maybe you just need a really tall ladder to help clean your gutters, and you don't own a ladder. Somebody in this body has a ladder. They'll let you borrow. Just write down a need. Don't let your pride keep you from expressing your need. We want to be the kind of church like the church in Acts that says there was no need among them because they all shared what they had. If you have a need, write the need, put it up on a board. There's a spot for your name on the back and any contact information you want to share. Then other people who have resources to be able to meet needs, they're going to grab one of those clipboards off the, the chart. I encourage you to do that this morning. If you're able to meet the need, go meet the need. You don't have to tell anybody about it. Just go meet the need. If you can't meet the need, bring it back next week. This is going to be up in our lobby for the next four or five weeks as an open invitation for us to share, for us to become conduits not containers so engage that starting this week let's pray our father i do pray for this body as they share as they make their needs known and as they give generously i pray that we would be the kind of church that would be a conduit not a container and god you've already put so much generosity in the hearts of this body. I can look around this room and see men and women who have significant resources and are sharing and are giving it away. And I think that's one thing that makes this church different. And God, I would pray that you would double that, that you would quadruple that generosity, that you would, uh, there would be something about living in Williamson County that people would look at this church and they would say, you know what? Those people are different. And part of the way that they're different is because they're just sharing. They're giving stuff away. They're like a sea of Galilee that's sort of nourishing the entire land around them. And I want to say this, Father, and confess it's true for all of us on behalf of this congregation that I'm with right now. The only way we can do that is for us to understand what we have already been given through Jesus Christ. That we are rich in all the ways that matter so that our identity does not have to be in our money and our success and our pursuit of more. Our identity can be put to rest in you, Jesus. And then we can see that money is not our identity. It's just money. Stuff is not our identity, it's just stuff. Success is not our identity, it's just success. And so we can open our hands when we start to see it that way. And I pray, Father, that that would be the work that you would do in this body to your glory in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.